I'm Julie with the City of Chandler's Video Department, and I am excited and honored to be able to share an incredible story of one of our very own Chandler residents, a decorated World War II veteran and Pearl Harbor survivor, Jack Holder. Thanks to the help of another local veteran, we were able to meet up with Jack and record his story to share with all of you. With this year marking the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, we are very fortunate to have Jack tell us his story of what happened on that fateful day and the days and months to follow. But before we get into all of that, let's get to know Jack. I was born in a small town by the name of Gunner, 15 miles from Dallas, December 13, 1921. When I was one year old, my father and mother moved to a small town 56 miles south of Wichita Falls. My father was a farmer. You can't believe where I lived during the Great Depression. We lived in a small four-room shack that my father built. No telephone, no electricity, no running water, no toilet. We had an outside toilet and Susan Roebuck catalog for toilet paper. We had the kerosene lamps to light the house two-word burning stove, one to heat the house, and one to cook. I walked one mile to school. The closest telephone was one mile. When I started high school, I was transported to a small town by the name of Newcastle in a green 1927 Model A Ford truck. Had wooden benches down each side for seating, and the sides of it were covered with canvas. You can imagine how cold it was in the wintertime with that canvas flapping in the breeze. Jack learned that farm life wasn't the life he wanted to lead. So in April of 1940, he joined the Navy at 18 years old and set his sights on flying. I can remember back, vaguely remember, when Lindbergh made his flight. Immediately then, my, my mother had a brother who was a barnstorming pilot. He was flying around Dallas in an air show. He inverted the aircraft, his seat belt broke, and he fell to his death, but I still wanted to fly. My father was a World War I veteran in the Army, of course. He never talked much about it, but he did tell me he spent a year crawling through the mud in France. I seen so many pictures that really caught my eye on the Navy, places where the Navy traveled all the beautiful pictures, and uh, I said, it's the Navy for me. This is before the Air Force even existed. The train ride from Dallas to Texas for boot camp was Jack's first time outside of Texas. While he was on that ride, he was in severe pain as his appendix burst on the train. Upon arriving to boot camp, he went and saw a doctor. It so happened that my last job prior to joining the Navy, I was cutting prickly pears with a long-handled shovel, piling the pears, letting them dry, and burning them so the cattle couldn't eat them. I had calluses on my hands, as you couldn't believe. The doctor looked at them. He said, what in the hell have you been doing? He then told me I had appendicitis. I was sent to the Naval Hospital, spent one month there, and one month later, I returned to boot camp for my boot camp training, spent two months in training. When I finished boot camp, I applied for and was accepted for four months of aviation machinist mate school. 
I finished the school December the 6th, 1940, and was immediately transported to the U.S. Platte, a sea tanker, loaded with six million gallons of fuel oil headed for Pearl Harbor. Arrival in Pearl Harbor, December the 12th, was immediately transported to a PBY squadron. PBY is a, is a, is a strictly a seaplane. It was built for search and rescue. Of course, after the war started, it was everything else, but that was the duty of it then. I uh, was a member of the PBY squadron, and the PBYs don't have fixed landing gear. They have what they call beaching gear. It's installed on the aircraft to bring it ashore, and it's pushed back in the, in the water to take the beaching gear off prior to flight. All takeoffs and landings are made on the water. Four months I spent in the beach crew. Following that, I was assigned to a plane crew as a first mechanic and a waist-hatched gunner. Four months later, I was promoted to flight engineer. Aircraft built back during this day, they had a special compartment for a flight engineer. Most of all your controls were in this compartment. The pilot couldn't even start an aircraft without flight engineer. Unlike aircraft that's built today where they moved over, did away with the flight engineer station and put everything in the cockpit. At any rate, Hawaii was a great place to see and to be when I first got there. You can imagine what it looked like, how beautiful it looked like to a small Texas boy that had never seen anything but cotton fields and grain fields. But that was all changed when Yamamoto arrived. Just before 8 a.m. on December 7, 1941, now 80 years ago, the first Japanese dive bomber appeared in Pearl Harbor. This was part of a first wave of nearly 200 aircraft. Within a quarter of an hour, the various airfields at the base, which is also where Jack Holder was on Ford Island, were subject to this surprise attack. I had the duty that day. When my section fell in for muster, the section leader began roll call. We heard a screaming aircraft and moments later a terrible explosion. The hangar beside us, VP-21, received the first bomb that fell in Pearl Harbor. When we ran outside, we seen all our aircraft circling overhead with the rising sun insignia. We knew immediately what had happened. And so many people asked me, what my thoughts were at that time. And there were so many, they're hard to describe, but fear, anger, surprise, whatever. But it so happened that one of my shipmates remembered the sewer line under construction behind our hangar. And he says, let's go for the ditch, follow me. We all ran, jumped in the ditch. One of the pilots seen us, straight the ditch with machine gun fire missing us but probably three feet he hit the dirt piled up beside the ditch i can still see this gentleman making his approach with the canopy open and a leather helmet flapping in the breeze i'll never forget it when we came out of the ditch i could look up from where we launched our aircraft in the water it was battleship row seen the arizona Nevada, West Virginia, Tennessee, Maryland, Pennsylvania, California, Utah, all had been torpedoed, all were smoking, all sinking. Arizona was really sinking. 
seen the Oklahoma turn turtle up. And at that time, I seen devastation and uh, turmoil that I'll never forget. I seen seamen jumping off the ships, jumping into water that was covered with oil and on fire. Most of them died in the water. Some of them died when they reached the beach. I'll never forget it. When the turmoil first started, martial law was declared all over Honolulu. Blackout was also called all over the islands. And uh, machine gun pits constructed from sandbags that had been set up all around Fort Island. Two shipmates and I manned one of them for three days and nights. We had no idea where the Japanese fleet were or if they planned on returning. But every ship noise and every aircraft noise we heard, we knew it was them coming back. Fortunately, that didn't happen. On the fourth day, we were allowed to return to our barracks. All lockers had been broken open to retrieve white clothing for bandages. And we were given a postcard at that time with two inscribed inscriptions. One of the first ones says, I've been wounded. The second one said, I'm okay, don't worry. My mother received this card 14 days later. And when I seen my father, sometime later, he said my mother was hysterical during that time. She got on her knees and prayed to God if he would save her son, she'd spend the rest of her life working for the church, and she did. The aftermath of the attack left Pearl Harbor a scene of devastation. Over 2,400 killed, almost another 1,200 wounded, 188 aircraft completely destroyed. 19 Navy ships, including battleships, were damaged or destroyed. This was an unimaginable hit to our Navy and to the United States. The attack on Pearl Harbor was not just the beginning of the U.S. involvement in World War II, but it was also the beginning of many missions for Jack. After that attack, President FDR called a military meeting to devise a plan to bomb Tokyo. This was an impossible mission that actually was made possible by some very brave pilots. They were all told they may not return, yet all still volunteered to do the mission anyway. In the end, they all reached their targets, but many would not return. Jack was not part of this mission, but he does play an important role in what happens next. Immediately following the uh, Tokyo raid, Japanese began sending numerous coded messages using the letters AF and AO. We had broken the Japanese code to a point. We knew that one of them stood for the Lucian Islands and the other for Midway, but they could not determine which one. Chief of Intelligence told Admiral Nimitz, he said, I've devised a plan to ascertain what they mean. He said, we can send out an uncoded message saying, Midway has just had a freshwater condenser failure. Yamamoto immediately sent out a coded message saying, AF has just had a freshwater condenser failure. We then knew what the letters stood for, but we still didn't know if their plans were to strike the Aleutians or Midway. Admiral Nimitz believed it would be Midway. Washington was not completely in accord. They sent a courier to talk to Nimitz. He asked him, says, what if you're wrong? Nimitz said, did Washington send you here to tell me not to go to Midway? He said, no. He said, then 
And then it says, then you return to Washington. He then sent a small task force in disguise to the Aleutians, and Yamamoto again took the bait. He said, the Japanese forces are moving towards the Aleutian Islands. We'll now take Midway. Okay, before he starts talking about the Battle of Midway, let me set the scene. Now, this battle went down in history as the greatest naval battle of all time. This was a battle that needed to be won. It was fought almost entirely with aircraft, in which the U.S. destroyed Japan's first-line carrier strength and most of its best-trained naval pilots. Together with the Battle of Guadalcanal, which Jack Holder was also a part of, the Battle of Midway ended the threat of further Japanese invasions in the Pacific. The battle lasted from June 4th to June 7th, 1942, which was almost exactly six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And if you're really interested in getting more details on this battle and don't want to read a book or watch a documentary, I highly recommend watching the 2019 film Midway. Not to be confused with the 1976 film Midway, which was more like a cheesy love story. Anyways, you'll recognize a ton of actors in it. The film was written mainly around real people in the battle, and it did a great job portraying the events that led up to the battle. And Jack Holder was a consultant for that film. Watching the film, you get a good sense of the battle, but you can guarantee there's no Hollywood in Jack's firsthand story. My squadron, VP-23, was left for Midway on April 26, began our search for the Japanese fleet. On June the 3rd, we found them 450 miles northeast of Midway. His crew was the second to spot the Japanese Armada. They're traveling towards Midway under a weather front. They continued through the weather front all the way to Midway arriving at six o'clock in the morning, June the 4th. The Marines on Midway were equipped with 27 Brewster Buffalo fighters. They sent all 27 aloft and only seven of them returned. And they were so badly damaged, they could not return the flight. Our torpedo fleet was completely annihilated. For the first two hours, we were definitely losing the battle. The Hornet launched 30 torpedo planes only one man returned, Ensign Gay. They then launched 15 more, and only four of those returned. 45 aircraft, we lost 40. But that was the time when the tide was about to turn. We had airborne three squadrons of dive bombers, led by Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey. They airborne for two hours, running on low on fuel, but they couldn't find the Japanese fleet. We had already reported their position, but Nagumo changed directions and they couldn't find them then. But I said they were airborne two hours, but the leader says we'll press on just a little longer. Moments later, they seen the white wake of a fast moving destroyer. And he says that ship has to be racing to join the main fleet, we'll follow it. Moments later, they did. They found three aircraft carriers Diving from 20,000 feet, they inflicted sufficient noise to sink all three carriers. They were aided by two factors. The Japanese fighters were at low altitude protecting their own ships from our torpedo planes. 
and Nagumo had received word that damage to Midway was slight. He says, we'll rearm with bombs and go back to Midway. Yamamoto said, no, we'll rearm with torpedoes and go after their fleet. While they were rearming, it's when our aircraft stuck. Sometime later, one of our admirals called Nimitz and says, we've had a great day. We just sunk three aircraft carriers. Do you think that's enough? He said, hell no, I want the fourth one. The Hiru, which was found sometime later, was also sunk. They come to Midway with four carriers and left with none. I was airborne four o'clock that morning, loaded with four 500-pound bombs. As I said earlier, we had spotted the approaching fleet, but later in the afternoon, we found a submarine surfaced. All hatches were closed, no one was on deck. We dropped two bombs, one on the fantail, one behind the conning tower. We made six circles around it, watching it sink. Later in the afternoon, we had lost all radio contact with Midway. We didn't know if we had been successful or not. We could take a chance on returning to Midway or we could sit down at sea. We dropped our two remaining bombs, unarmed, sat down at sea, drifted all night. I took a sleeping bag, climbed on top of the wing, tied myself to an antenna and spent the night. And I've been asked so many times, I guess, what my thoughts were when I lay there listening to the waves splashing against the side of the aircraft. I thought, well, maybe foreman wasn't that bad. Any rate, the next morning, we finally made contact with Midway. We learned that we had been successful. We were also told there was a destroyer at the French frigate Shoals loaded with aviation fuel. We took sunshots, found our position, flew to the shows, refueled, went to Midway. The next day, we were out looking for downed seamen. Late in the afternoon, we found two gentlemen in a life raft, but we were low on fuel at the time. We radioed a sister ship. They landed, picked up a gentleman, took them to Midway. We returned to Honolulu the next day. Had five glorious days at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, but that was short-lived. July the 2nd, I was on my way to Guadalcanal. Our first stop at Guadalcanal was at New Maya, New Caledonia, where we was, we, 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 our craft were tied up in buoys in the bay, but we tended off a seaplane tender, the Curtis, slept aboard it and had our meals aboard, but, uh, Oh, as I said, all our, all our aircraft were tied up to buoys out in the water. For the first two months, we were definitely losing this battle. Admiral Gormley was in charge of all the forces there. He had never even been on the island of Guadalcanal. He was relieved by Admiral Halsey. Admiral Halsey came aboard to Curtis, shook hands with everybody. He then went to Guadalcanal, visited every unit on the island, he says, we'll no longer allow the Japanese to call the strikes. He said, we'll kill every son of a bitch on this island and I'll be right there with you. Things begin to change. Later on at 43, I received orders to travel to San Diego, supposedly to help commission a new PBOI squadron and return to the Pacific. 
But when I reached San Diego, my orders were changed. I started training in the B-24 Liberator, a four-engine bomber. Spent two months there. Was moved to August, uh, Newfoundland for another two months of training. Arrived in Devonshire, April 1943. Began 15 months of, of anti-submarine patrol over the English Channel and the Bay of Biscay, which is the western coast of France. Flew 56 missions over the English Channel and managed to uh, sink one submarine there. I received orders then in early June 1944 to travel to Chincoteague, Virginia to help commission a new B-24 squadron. But the war was drilling down at that time. The squadron was never commissioned. I spent a year there, was transferred to Pensacola, Florida for another year. Later on, I was transferred to Patuxent River, Maryland for my final year. Jack Holder and his Navy flight crewmates bravely flew in all of these missions, never knowing if it'd be their last. On April 24, 1948, Jack Holder was honorably discharged as a first-class aviation machinist mate. He also took with him 36 medals in commendations, including two distinguished flying crosses. After leaving the military, Jack had an impressive career in various industries. He spent over 25 years on corporate and commercial aircraft, first as a mechanic, then as a co-pilot, on to becoming a pilot, which he trained himself and uh, went to school while he was working. He also became a pro golfer for a couple of years and was the board chairman and president of an oil company for a while. You can tell when talking to him, though, that he really enjoyed his years flying. After he retired in December of 1991, he took to the golf course, as he would say. It wasn't until he was in his early 90s that he actually started to talk about his experiences during World War II and wrote a book called Fear, Adrenaline, and Excitement. People have asked me how I come up with this name, Fear, Adrenaline, and Excitement. Anyone that's ever been in the, the middle of a battle can tell you there's always a moment of fear. I don't care who you are, General Patton or who. But there's a great difference between fear and being afraid. If you're afraid, it's long-lasting and, and it causes bad decisions. Fear is momentary, and when the adrenaline starts to flow, the fear goes away. Then it becomes excitement. It, comes, it becomes a battle land, a battle that you definitely want to win. Jack has made multiple trips back to Pearl Harbor on December 7th when Pearl Harbor survivors, veterans, and visitors from all over the world come together to honor and remember those on that day. Three or four years ago, I was signing autographs out there, and a gentleman come by, and uh, he asked me where I was in the Navy. I told him, Fort Island, VP-23. He says, that's my squadron. Of course, that was about 50 years later. So, you know, it's uh, just things like that that, uh, well, it's unique and it's, uh, it's very pleasing to, to meet someone that way. Jack's service to his community hasn't stopped. He continues to share his story with people of all ages all around the nation. What I tell these young kids in school, you know, that they need to remember Pearl Harbor, they need to remember the war. For God's sakes, we need to do everything we can to let it not happen again. 
I tell all these young folks in school to stay in school as long as they can, learn everything they can. Education was not as necessary when I grew up as it is now. They need to learn all they can, and sometimes that's not enough. And remember one thing, they live in the greatest country in the world. They need to treasure our flag and treasure this country. When I see those young kids, especially the younger ones, or even up on uh, even the high school, when I see they enjoy what I tell them, it's a great pleasure to me. Jack will be turning 100 years old on December 13th. So if you see him around, be sure to wish him a happy birthday. We are so very fortunate to have Jack in our community and so thankful he continues to serve and share his story with all of us. And today, let's remember those lost and all those impacted on this day 80 years ago in Pearl Harbor. This is a day which will live in infamy. <laughs>